Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. If you want to be able to keep the show on the air, go to patreon.com slash indoctrination. Easy peasy. Just patreon.com slash indoctrination and become a supporter of the show for any amount you can. It will be very much appreciated and used very well, every penny of it, so that we can keep it going. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now for today. You get to hear the second part of my conversation with Todd Brown. He has one of these stories where we probably could have talked for hours, but we had to limit it because you probably didn't want to sit down to listen to something for hours and hours. He was involved in an offshoot Sufi community in Illinois called the Diami Tarikat for 23 years. And he worked as a baker at their business during that time. So he was very, very involved. Since leaving the group in March of just this year, he has come out again as a gay man. And he's also returned to school to complete a graduate degree in counseling. He hopes to earn a PhD and help people leave coercive environments. And he's a nice guy. And I really appreciate him telling his story. He mentioned last time this was the first podcast he had been on where he was actually talking about what happened to him. It's not an easy thing. It takes a lot of bravery. And I give him a lot of credit. Here's Todd now. So moving ahead then, during the last episode, we were talking about when you first walked into your first meeting with this particular group, are there pieces that you wanted to share from before that, that led you up to wanting or being open to going to that meeting? So I was in Arizona, I was dealing with PTSD, I was, things were sort of out in the open, and I had a chance to sort of start over, like I worked at Kmart, and I I just was like, okay, get myself back. I was off alcohol and drugs. I was, I went as, I was in a halfway house for a while and I was, you know, I was on the right track. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point I just got in my car, went back to Indiana where I was born and got back to my, into my parents' house. And I was still sober and getting good help and uh, ended up going, ending up getting accepted into a PhD program in my dad's old department. <laughs> so at, at Indiana and um so it was fine and in fact I was I was so I was ridiculously successful I did I overdid everything just the way that they in the cult of graduate school they they love that you know and mm-hmm. um and then it, it's hard for me to trace this exactly but I I I always felt in terms of being gay and in, in the whatever the gay men's world and i always felt really not it's like you take my ptsd and the sexual abuse stuff and i was i'd never had i always had shitty boundaries and i i found crazy people and i i just didn't feel safe mm-hmm. i felt i felt unsafe and scared everywhere i went and i ended up in a relationship with a professor and those experiences they 
there was something triggering, like where I, I would feel so excited and God, that was exciting to me when I would seduce sort of, I use the word seduce. It, it puts me in a negative light, but I would, I was very excited and happy and attracted to these kinds of situations where I would be sexually involved with someone who had more, who I perceived as having power. I don't know. It's hard for me to understand all this, but I, I found like he was like an alcoholic and it was dramatic, but the biggest thing was that it felt so, and then I was stoned most of that summer. I couldn't feel just safe in myself. Like I had no way of being just grounded. Here I am. I'm, I can make decisions. I can, I can say no to that. I can say yes to that. Like all that was just broken. Like that's what's happening. August of 97, my friend calls me because he had met the Sufis in New York. Uh, he, he was my friend in New York. This is four years later. These Sufis who lived in New York while I was there, but I didn't know them. He says, oh my gosh, these Sufis, they bought some land in Illinois and I'm going to be there visiting them. Why don't you come visit? And I said, that sounds weird, uh, but I want to see you. So, okay, I'll come. And so I went and it was beautiful and the house was beautiful. They have a big house. It was a beautiful place, a big old house. And there were eight or 10 people living there. And there were maybe 10 or 15 other people living in town in different places. And they would gather there every morning for prayer and chanting. And um, it was lovely. The guru thing kind of freaked me out. I was not interested in a guru. I had no interest in that. But I met people and they were lovely. So I was a person who felt unsafe in the world. Mm -hmm. And when I walked into that place, I felt protected. I felt safe from my sexuality was really out of control and it felt like it had no boundaries and I'd had some not so great experiences, not just the childhood ones, but so there's something in me in that house that went Whew. like I took a breath and I was okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my assumption was that I remember thinking like, well, you know, I'm a sexual abuse survivor. Like they're probably, these people are probably not interested in these stories of mine. They're probably, there's probably nobody here like me. That's, I remember thinking that. And one of his wives has some crazy childhood stories. And she, now that I'm looking back on it, is sort of one of the chief implicit recruiters of this group. And she would never see it that way, but she is loving and open and here I am for you and I'm kind of acting like your mom and like yeah you can tell me anything like warm mm -hmm. and I sat with her and she told me some things about her story and I remember thinking I can be myself here this is this, this is the place <laughs> and I went back and then there were all these little things that helped to build trust and I remember I went to the guru and I and I very quickly I had the feeling of like I'm going to overachieve this. And it wasn't conscious, but like I was, look, I'm good at language. I am smart. I am, I can figure out the rules really quickly. I can learn the prayer faster than anyone ever has. I can, I'm just going to study Arabic. I'm going to grow the right beard. Like I very quickly could master this situation in my mind. Mm -hmm. you're nodding I, I expect that like I just had all the skills to do it the best 
you know, and, um, Mm-hmm. Right. And the reason that I'm that I'm smiling for anyone who's just listening and can't see the reason I'm smiling and nodding my head is that sometimes people will have this misconception about people who get involved in cultic groups that there is something lacking in some way, just in terms of their intellect and their abilities. Uh, and it's usually quite the opposite, that they will be lauded and applauded and um, moved up the ranks if they are able to show what a lot of them have, which is certain skills, tenacity, the ability to memorize information, wanting to do things the right way, the best way, uh, wanting to please the people around them, being able to handle uh, not only taking in new information, but taking on new tasks and doing so much simultaneously. And that's, that's much more typical of someone involved in a cult. Uh, but yes, a lot of people also will say, I, I dug my heels in and I got very motivated to want to do a really good job. And what happens then is that in your motivation, you can sometimes be so, I want to say like switched on, you know, that you're just moving forward and you're you're working so hard that then you might not take the time to step away for a moment and wonder, is this actually how I should be using all of my energy and my brain power? Is this getting me what I want? Is this getting me any farther? Because a lot of people just get busy being busy and they don't have the vantage point. They don't take the time away. But anyway, so that's why I was nodding my head and that's what I was going to say. So go for it. Yeah, keep going. So so you were just, you knew that you were going to be able to do this well. Yes. And there were certain things that I that struck me as building trust with the guru. And one of them was, I, I said, like, I want to move here. And he said to me, you know, this is like a relationship. Like, you got to take your time. And so he put me, he said, you cannot move here yet. Go and go and do another year of school. And I was like, "Well, that that's not very cultish. Like that's that's great. Like thank you, thank you for you know." He was very, very powerful. This guy, he is. He's really well spoken, charismatic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we would sing around. We would sit around, and he would play on his guitar. And there was there was a feeling. And so I started driving back and forth and I drove back and forth as often as I could about a four hour drive. And I would come back and I would stay as long as I could. And I would, I was, and I, I had immediately changed my life. Like I, I cut off that relationship. I was doing, you know, I learned the Islamic prayer and I was doing that at home. And I was, I quit drinking. I quit. I just did everything. And then there was a series of events that are very powerful. One of them is that I got a name, mm. uh, Tarek. Um, which everybody used for me. Um, and also he paid for me to come with the group. He paid for me, paid for my ticket and I went. Go to, uh, in Germany. So they have a different site in Germany too. Okay. Yep. There's, there's a, there's a group in Germany. And at that time there was a Denver group and an Austin group. And there were, there were different satellites. They're all gone now. The, the German one is still there, but so there is a, a German community with a house. Um, but I just threw myself in. It was exciting. Mm. And I told my I told my parents, and they were used to me being crazy at this point. So I'm like, Dad, Mom, I'm I'm a 
quitting graduate, I'm quitting my PhD program and I'm moving in with these people. Okay, whatever, you know, you're always doing something nutty. So, um, so I moved in and I moved into the community house mm-hmm. and that was mm-hmm. 98. So maybe you can talk about kind of a day in the life, what it was like for you just day by day. So people can have kind of a vision of what you did while you were there, while you were living there. So let me try to explain the pressure I felt to be a heterosexual person. (laughs) Because I was never told that I couldn't be gay. And I was never, I was never told that I had to marry my wife. In fact, when we sort of went to ask for permission, I'm air quoting again, when we went to ask for permission to get married, he was kind of like, well, okay, really? You want to do that? So it was this sense of like, all right. Um, but I felt something in me, and it's related to the feeling of uh, walking into that house and feeling safe. I had some investment in my heart and in my, in my body and in my experience to try to fit in there as best as I could. And to try to be as close to him as possible in, in the inner circle. And there was a lot of layers there. but And it was a similar feeling of like safety and companionship. And somehow imagining that I would leave behind all the conflict and fear that I felt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. About trying to navigate in the world where mm-hmm. I felt traumatized and scared and that and of course, I justified that in a million different ways in my mind. But that's, I was following a feeling of safety. Okay. So it was, it was innocent. It wasn't like, I can't be gay anymore. It did not operate like that in my brain. When I look back on the whole thing, I see a lot of little kind of micro cues of where he shamed and belittled me. And a lot of it was related to my sort of bin- non binariness as a human being. I mean, you can, you can tell by my expression that I'm, I'm emotional, I'm intuitive. I knew when things weren't fair. I was not ever a male human being that was traditional or typical. And he would, in some very loud, aggressive ways, but he would call me dramatic. He would call me emotional in a, in a denigrant, slightly denigrating way. He would I mean, the way that it felt was that, like, it's almost like there's this river and he's, like, I came in as this wild flood and he would just put parameters on it until, until I was in this very narrow bandwidth of how I felt like I could succeed. Right. Okay. Right. He needed to corral you. He needed to control you, it sounds like. He needed like. to corral me. Yeah. Okay. I, was, I needed to be corralled and I was corralled. And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell one story. And I've written about this recently. There were maybe three or four years into me being with Soupy's full time. And like the day in the life was that we got up every morning for morning prayer and we did the Muslim prayers and we we had an hour and a half every morning prayer, meditation, and chanting. And then we would do seva, which is of course is unpaid labor for the community. And we had a farm. And it was so many things about the community were beautiful. Like we, you know, we grew organic vegetables and we there was this, you know, great system of understanding. And it was the way all the books I'm reading now say, like, there was an entire system. It was all your life. You didn't need anything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. Right. All of these things. And um, so one 
night we were preparing for a Christmas celebration, which isn't very Muslim, but it proved that we were how open-minded we were that we were celebrating Christmas, you know, and we were all at the house and the guru, he's like, oh, it's, he's here, he's here, you know, this thing. And uh, he comes through the door in his costume, his sheikh costume, and he says, has anyone called the prayer? And someone says, oh, no, Baba, nobody has yet. And he turned around and left. And it was this, it was, it was a punishment. It was, it was a, the script was, we weren't ready, we weren't present, we weren't aware and he left the whole community kind of panicked i was personally panicked the feeling of what you described rachel is like somehow i had disappointed him Mm -hmm. was a very very powerful tool for this person and this what happened is that he he lived 15 miles south of town on this farm Mm -hmm. and we decided that we were going to pile in our cars and follow him down there and try to talk to him so you know all the devotees piling into cars following him down there and we got there and he was in one of his wife's house houses and the wife says something like well he he wants to know what you want and we're like well we want to just give ourselves or something Mm -hmm. you know so we we ended up piled into his living room all of us crammed into this room, all of us kind of on our knees, ready to beg forgiveness. And um, he's organizing his CDs or something. He's doing something that shows that he's sort of not attached to what's going on, like not really noticing us. So what happens then is that everyone goes around the room and apologizes in some, you know, devotee kind of way, like, so sorry, I wasn't present. And, and I remember feeling this feeling of like, why do I feel conflicted like i realized at some point that i was feeling like it's hard to explain but i had this i had this awareness that i wasn't always wanting to be around him Hmm. and i and i had this awareness that he scared me and i had this feeling of like in my the way that i had learned to operate in the world was to just divulge you know so i was the person so i remember saying i started saying something it was my turn whatever and I, i said something like I notice that I felt two things. And I think I said something like, I felt almost relief when you left. And he turned around out of his shuffling, looked at me and said, you want to make this about yourself? Fuck you. Okay. <laughs> I Wow. Yeah. Okay. Not the most spiritual moment. I mean, again, I don't know this person. Yes. I'm saying this, not knowing this person, but he's making it about him. Yeah, but we didn't know. We had no access to that. We had no access to that. But when I look back, I realized I was absolutely in knots and I was so ashamed. Sure, sure. I mean, to to be blamed in that way, to be told that you're being selfish, that yes. this was self-motivated, uh, that was against who you were. If you describe yourself when you're young as this empathic person, you're all about being in touch with someone else's feelings, being there for their feelings, accommodating to them. Um, and so there, there, is, um, there are a few insults that hurt the most 
for empaths. And one is that you were making this about you. Oh God, it was, it was horrible. Yes. And that, what I, what I'm noticing is that that experience never left me every time I was in a room with him. So every time we were together and he did this, the kind of thing on a few other occasions, but he, sometimes he would just leave. And I always felt personally responsible. And anytime we were together, I was afraid that that was going to happen again, unconsciously. And I would compensate for it. So like he would give us, whenever he would give us an instruction or an exercise, like for example, this is related to the telling of the story. A few years ago, he gave us an exercise. He said, I want everyone to, everyone at the manager's table, because we were sort of the elite, right? I want everyone to carry 50 pennies in their pocket. And every time you speak about yourself or say I, or change a conversation to be about your own perspective, I want you to move a penny. Mm -hmm. And so so the exercise, and we were all carrying around 50 pennies and we were moving them and we were, it made us to be, it made every interaction to be about the other person. So like, right, right. even separate from the exercise itself, I remembered that I would always have to remember to carry 50 pennies in my top pocket because what would happen is we'd come to satsang and he'd be like, I'll bet he'd say something like, I'll bet some of you don't even have your pennies on. You. Oh, okay. So you would get called out for not having your pennies. So my, I would prepare myself so that if he said, who's got their pennies on them, I could raise my hand. And it was all just about fear. And it, and it just, it just went on for years and years and years and years. And then, wow. I mean, there's, there's a million stories. I just, and, it, and there's a lot of really shitty stories, but one, one other thing I want to express about my own, and I mentioned this in the little medium article was that at some point he found out that I was a musician and I wrote as a teenager, I wrote songs and I was a drummer and played the piano. And when he found that out, he took me out that day and bought a drum set. And I was immediately part of the community band. We had a rock band and we toured in Germany for three years, like we all over Europe. Like it was a very exciting. Okay. But what I want to say about my internal experience of that time was that band practice was the most stressful thing for me. And what I was up against mentally and emotionally was he was the leader, of course. He was not good at a lot of different parts of music. He was not good at keeping time. He was, and I was always aware that he was not good at certain things. The process of being in a band with him was him almost constantly being angry at me for not being in time. Uh, not, I was always blamed. And so, so I was the target for years of all the musical problems. And a lot of the homophobia, it's a little hard to explain, but a lot of, a lot of the shaming that kind of homophobic shaming came through my musical tastes and my the way I sang and the way that I expressed because I would write songs Mm -hmm. and they might he would make fun of them for being too musical musical theater like it was it was shaded homophobia yeah yeah and and the way that I sang was embarrassing to him and so again I was cordoned into this little and I would end up writing these little spiritual songs and he would make fun of the way I wrote them and he would change them into his own method his own style and 
at a certain point, it became such a joke, air quotes, that everything was my fault, that he would introduce me at every gig as the drummer. This is Tarek, the drummer. Everything is his fault. And so he would make a joke out of it. And then I would, I would also have to joke about it. Like, haha, joking, joking. I remember moments in the band where he would be doing something that went against my own personal knowledge of like he would be speeding up and I would tell my brain and tell myself that this was a lesson and that I need to always follow his lead. So I, I took, I used all of my muscles and all of my strength and all of my consciousness to trust him and follow his lead. And here, here's the truth is like my wife and everyone witnessed, I took it as some kind of gift that I had been given that I could handle this. It was a trophy of my own worthiness that I could handle what he dished out without being resistant or without talking back. I could just soak it all in. So I want to talk about that for a moment, because first of all, I, I do hope that you, if you haven't already, that I hope that you do get your creativity back and that you can play drums with abandon and with whatever tempo, <laughs> uh, really, because that's very important to reclaim that that was taken away from you. When you are dealing with personalities who feel so easily threatened, what they do is they won't ever admit that they're feeling threatened. They just make everything everyone else's fault. Yes. Uh, and so that's the way that they are able to stay above reproach. And so if something doesn't work out, it's on everyone else. And what they're saying is, I, my fragile ego cannot tolerate that if this music sounds bad, that's on me. And so I'm going to make sure that I am going to berate everybody else for that and everything else that I'm, I'm not as good at. And I'm also going to berate the person who I feel like I can. Yes. And typically in cultic groups, that's almost everybody. Yes. Because you don't have a choice. You can't in, in that space, that being your community, this being your guru. I think you, you can't stand up and say, what the hell? <laughs> like you, you're the one who's off. I'm pretty good. And so why don't you just let us do our thing? We'll probably sound just fine and just relax, sit down and let us play some music for everybody. Um, and why also do you keep making me feel bad about myself uh, as opposed to you being able to take responsibility for your part in this? But instead, no, you're going to you're going to do what's safest to do, which is to turn inward because it's not safe to turn outward and to, to point a finger outward. So you pointed a finger inward. And I think controllers, when they see someone doing that, they say, oh, okay, I can just keep going with it because uh, I'm not going to get pushback. That's not a criticism of you. That's a criticism of them for taking advantage of you being self-reflective. Yes. And how dare somebody do that to someone who is willing to be self-reflective? So in any event, the time that you decided three months ago yes. that that was it, was there, was, was it just an accumulation of things or was there that moment 
where you thought, uh-huh, I'm out? Well, I think it was, well, it was pretty quick, but it was still a little gradual over a few weeks. So, but it was really when I, the story now I realize is really related to COVID and social distancing. Okay. There was a buildup over time. Like my family got our, our own house, which has really helped the separation happen. So we were, we were living separate. There was, there was a gradual separation and I had this great opportunity to play Atticus Finch at the university. So I was, I was pursuing like against all of the will of the group, I was pursuing some things for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and but there was this moment where I knew I was going to start social distancing because I live with my 89 year old mother. I'm like, you know, I, I have to not be around people. Yeah. And yeah. then with this lag where the community, this is very predictable the guru in the community, you could tell they weren't going to want to do this. And any sort of separation, of course, is not allowed. Right. At least vibrationally. So I remember there was an email exchange and it was, we had, they had finally canceled the community program. I was like, oh my God, thank you for not being complete idiots. Right. And um, they had put out a, a saver request my air quotes and it said hey who can get together and who can make a meal that we can distribute since we're not having satsang tonight and i said i'll do it my family will do it but i won't lead up a team because we're social distancing and as i'm writing it i'm like this is not going to go well so the guru writes back of course and says what do you mean by that and i'm like this is so predictable uh-huh. and, yes. and i and i uh-huh. i say well my family's social distancing, take care of my mom, so I don't want to lead up a team of people. Mm-hmm. We will do it. Mm-hmm. And he writes back and he says, so you're all going to stay six feet apart from each other, right? So it was smart-assy. Yeah, yeah. This was very typical. Mm-hmm. And something in, something in me went like, in this moment, I am not going to put my mom's life at risk. I'm going to let you disapprove of me. And there was this little bit of gap. Yeah. And then a few days later, I went to my wife and I go, what do you think about maybe stepping back from community life? Because we're quarantined. We're in our own separate house. They're in another part of town. I don't have to see anybody. And she's like, really? (laughs) Yes. And it took her a little while, but she has been ready for years. And, you know, pretty quickly we felt that kind of freedom like oh my god we can it's thursday night and we can do whatever we want you know and 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 then gradually since then it's been sinking in of like holy crap this is real ptsd is real i'm learning about dissociation and how how i felt things and didn't and then push them down and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's all one giant like Mm -hmm. oh my fucking god kind of experience and uh all the things that happened and I am not telling you some really bad stories. I am only telling you that they exist and I'm not telling you the details. So the powers that be hurt a lot of people. And um, mm. so here, here I am telling you the story and I am a, uh, they do not like that. I am telling the, telling you these stories and they will, call me mentally ill and bipolar and they will try to hack me and they will do whatever they can. And it hurts a lot that all those people think that I'm mentally ill. 
but I also understand that this process is this process will lead me to letting it go. And I am I am even though it doesn't feel good, I am a hundred percent thrilled and um so happy to be able to tell these stories. And um so now now that the big thing for my healing is kind of like, oh shit, I gotta go back to the child. I, I mean, there was this 23 years of dissociation, but now I gotta go back to like three, four, five, six-year-old Todd and try to get him back to and uh, let him have his, because that was, that process of healing that boy was put on hold. Yes. Yes. And and this 52-year-old gay man has to search, has to get, let me put it this way, gets to Mm -hmm. sort through. Yes the pure sweetness of my attractions and my sexuality and try to find a way what if it's possible to express it in a way that doesn't hurt me right i do think that once you leave something that takes up so much of your brain power and that and where you're also so consumed with the other needing to please the other you can then be consumed with ways to make sure that you can keep that person happy with you, which is true of being in any relationship that's actually controlling and, and or with somebody who, who is, uh, has trouble managing their own emotions and you feel responsible for their emotions and you f- feel responsible not only for their emotions, but for their reactions and for their rejections of you and all of it. So I think now that you're free from that, even though it's going to take some time to really separate out, but that you now have given yourself an opportunity to have the time and the the mental space to go back to the three, four, five-year-old Todd and honor his experience and focus on him and his emotions. And then I think the the other part is, just so you know, because I've talked to so many people who have been involved in groups, not all of them thought that the people who left were crazy. Uh, sometimes they were jealous uh, and I don't mean in a negative way. I mean, they, they're waiting for their moment to feel brave enough. They're waiting for their moment to have an out. They're unhappy and they've been unhappy for a long time, but they know they have to go along with berating you. They know they have to go along with uh, behaving a certain way so that they don't let on. Yes. And so not everybody thinks you're mentally ill. Some people wish they were in the situation that you are in now. What you're saying is true. And I think there are people over there who know me well enough and trust me well enough that they will, they will wonder. (laughs) They'll wonder, right. And I hope for them, as I'm sure you do, that whatever is the, the sort of the right path for them, whatever that means. And I don't believe actually there's one right path or whatever, but that the one that is healthier for them, that they avail themselves of the opportunity to take that. Yes. Uh, and, um, and that they can contact you if they want to, because that's going to be very healing for you and for them. But yes. I, I, I thank you for your bravery in starting to talk about your experience, knowing that you've, you again, have had a lot of fear induction over the years. And so I think people don't realize just physiologically what people have to push through and ignore the racing heart and the sweating and all that, just to tell their story and to say certain things out loud. 
So I give you a lot of credit for that. Thank you. Thank you for doing that for the people listening. And a lot of people find that very empowering and they hope one day to be able to tell their story. That would be the hope is that people can feel more safe. Yeah. So I do hope to be able to talk to you again. And it was a pleasure to get to know your story and for people to be able to get to know you. And I wish you well in your journey moving ahead in your life and also moving back with more insight uh, and more healing. So going both directions at once. Thank you, Rachel. It was a pleasure. One more thing before you go. So many controlling environments operate in the extreme, the black and white kind of thinking that we talk about in cults and in fundamentalist kinds of religions and in controlling relationships where you're either a good partner or a bad partner, kind of nowhere in between, based on what you do and how much you put up with. Well, it's something that Todd talked about in numerous ways, and I'd like to highlight that kind of all or nothing thinking by going back to something he mentioned this week and something he mentioned last week. When people get ensnared in a system of control, there's a hierarchy. And not only is the hierarchy about the kind of work you do and how much work, it's actually important to note, too, that cult leaders often work a lot less than their members and sometimes not at all. There is still this hierarchy, a hierarchy of responsibility for the followers, hierarchy of blame also for the followers. I have a very clear sense about why Todd talked about feeling that he was responsible for his guru's emotions, responsible for his reactions, responsible for his moods, and in a very powerful statement, he was responsible for his rejections. I think that was so well said, and it's also to be expected, unfortunately. And when people in charge say it's always someone else's fault, they're actually not saying it's your fault necessarily. They're saying, I can't handle it being my fault. But they're not open to being able to reveal the actual reason that they make it your fault. They just make sure the focus is directed outward from them to everyone else or to certain people who are targeted. And if something doesn't work out just perfectly, well, it's never because of them. It couldn't be because the situation is ridiculous and the amount of pressure given to you to achieve things is nothing one person can achieve to that degree. It's actually very juvenile in these situations, that these people with ultimate power have this sense of being serious, having this wisdom. They're somehow using this pointing a finger at you and blaming you and having you take responsibility as a lesson to you, a lesson you need to learn, a way that you need to look at your behavior and be more careful. It makes it very hard when people always give someone else responsibility and the other person takes it and then they do absorb a lot of the time feeling responsible. It's like people who leave abusive relationships. Well, maybe they just could have tried harder. Maybe they just could have been more perfect and then the other person wouldn't have hurt them. But by the time someone's been involved in a cultic group or that kind of relationship for a while, they become kind of entwined with that person. 
they're so focused on needing to please them that they don't think about themselves anymore. And they'll sometimes not know where kind of they end and the leader begins or their controller begins. And people do start to think that if the person controlling them is in a bad mood, it must be because of something they did or didn't do. It's an important trait, if this were in a healthy environment, that a person takes responsibility for what is theirs. But you really only want to be in a situation where you take responsibility for what is yours and the other person takes responsibility for what is theirs. That doesn't exist in a cult. And because that doesn't exist, you, the follower, you, the targeted follower, are perpetually carrying the burden of responsibility, never to be relieved of it. And is that really the kind of relationship you want? Is that the kind of relationship you signed up for? Is that kind of the spiritual group you thought you were getting involved with? and the kind of feelings you were thinking you were going to have there? And are you staying in because you think it's going to move you to a higher level of awareness or being better in some way if you learn these lessons and work harder? It will actually just cause you more confusion than awareness, more confusion than insight, when something is always your fault. So how do you know when it's your responsibility, when it's always your responsibility, and it's never theirs? Well, that's your first clue. When you're dealing with the always and the nevers, that is never, and I'll use that word here, accurate. But it's especially hard to be clear about it when the community around you also points their fingers in your direction too. They don't want to be on the hot seat. They're kind of happy, even if they're your friends, to have the focus be on you. Please know if you are still in a relationship like this where your partner and all of his or her friends and all of his or her family just always point the finger at you, or if you're involved in a community or a business where everyone around you also points the finger at you as being the culprit, it's not actually proof of anything just because it's what the majority seems to feel around you. It's very often that this is just part of the culture or that it's a way to appease the person in charge because they know this person needs to be appeased or they're going to be turned on themselves. And the people are just more than happy sometimes to keep pointing the finger away from themselves because they know what happens when it's pointed at them. It's most often just for self-preservation, unfortunately, and personal safety, but it leaves you kind of being hung out to dry. And think about why it's always turned on you. Within cults, there's no logic to cause and effect. It's actually usually reversed. There's a social truism, but notice if someone somehow is always the cause. Look at patterns. Always look at patterns. If you take responsibility for your guru, or controlling leader, or partner's emotions and reactions, and as Todd said, rejections, then you want to step back and say, okay, so has it helped? Has it made the guru like me? Has it elevated me to a higher position? 
Am I seen with more and treated with more respect? Has this somehow calmed the guru over time because he knows someone else will assume responsibility so he doesn't ever have to? Has it established you as trustworthy or a selfless person who deserves respect or at least kindness? Probably not. Please pay attention to that. It's proof that repeated displaced responsibility, when it happens so regularly or always, it will never change because it keeps the structure the way it is and it protects the leader's or the controller's ego, which is what the structure is based upon. It's important for you to know that the people who are the controllers actually have an internal conflict, which causes you to actually be unable to fully please them because they're not able to be pleased, at least not over the long term. The eternal conflict is that they work every angle to maintain control over you, but as soon as they know they can control you, they stop respecting you. It's a catch-22 for you also. And remember that when we go back to something that Todd talked about the week before, which also is within this rubric of black and white thinking. Then not only is there a strict hierarchy of all the people who need to take responsibility for things that aren't their responsibility and all the people namely the leader who does not want people to ever be able to leave the group and want people to just sort of keep trying harder and harder to please the leader and stay in. Todd talked about how people who left were talked about like they had mental illness and that their leaving the group was proof of it. This happens almost all the time. So he knows that that's what's happening to him now, and it's very hurtful. And he knows he's being diagnosed wildly and unofficially, of course, by people within the group as someone who has mental illness. And that's why he left. It's another form of the same thing we see over and over, that there's something wrong with you if you leave anything. There's something wrong with you if you leave your controller, that somehow you kind of just were not good enough, or your controller was sick of you anyway, or you can never do better than this controller because you drove them crazy and you're beneath them and you couldn't hack it and you're a disappointment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But again, back to it's always you. It's always on you. And so when, again, you're dealing with the always and the nevers, just know that there are no two people who get involved in a cult for the exact same reasons. So it's also true that there are no two people who leave for the exact same reasons. They cannot all be diagnosed as the same. So if you get involved in a group or in a relationship where the person uses that kind of absolute language that everyone has kind of broken up with them because they have something wrong with them, or everyone who has left the group must have something wrong with them, know that within a certain matter of time, that you, too, when you have decided to leave the group, 
You'll be discarded, diagnosed, insulted. You'll be insulted by the group of people who you were closest to, who you sometimes kind of knocked people out of your life in order to get closer to, in order to have as your new community. And as soon as you hear those messages about all the people who have left the group, you want to be actually a person who leaves the group as soon as possible. You'll know that you're going to be talked badly about. So it's going to happen anyway. Go through it sooner than later. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.